0: Playboy Mansion. But I mean, it, it, it does beg the question: What has gone wrong with young Hollywood? Honest to God, what is the problem? Welcome to season five of Lay Do You Remember This, where we look back on all the stories from Hollywood's best worst decade, the early 2000s. A time in history when America found out that with a trust fund, a sex tape, and a dream, you too could become a star. As always, I'm your host, Dara Lane. In the last episode of our series on Playboy Magazine and The Girls Next Door, We left off in 2001 when Holly Madison packed up her caboodle full of Disney figurines and hauled them over to the Playboy Mansion. Hugh Hefner had agreed to let her stay there as a girlfriend on a trial basis after she'd been kicked out of her apartment by her roommate. With no money, student loans, and bad credit, Holly's options were limited, and without immediate intervention, she'd be forced to move back home to Oregon. Most of the young women who had come and gone from the mansion had moved in under similar circumstances. They'd come from out of town with no connections, and when money and opportunities were scarce, the mansion offered room, board, and a possible stepping stone to a career. Holly had already experienced the clubbing and group sex night that was a requisite duty for the girlfriends, so she knew the situation wasn't ideal, but it would work as a transitional living arrangement until she could get back on her feet. So she picked up her suitcase full of Care Bear sweatshirts and rainbow bright pogs and followed one of the mansion secretaries into the Hefner halfway home for blondes. Holly was shown to her living quarters and handed a key to her room, and that was that. Though there was no official orientation on move-in day, eventually another boarder would explain the regimented schedule and rules set forth by the gentleman who oversaw the manor. Headmaster Heff was very strict because he believed that for little blondes to become big bunnies, they needed discipline. Rule number one, curfew is at 9 p.m. on the dot. Number two, no red lipstick. Number three, blondes must maintain a close buzz cut on their pubic hair at all times. Number four, hemlines for skirts, shorts, and dresses must be an appropriate length. If you aren't sure, put both arms down by your sides. If the hem goes past your elbow, it's too long. Rule number five, each blonde will receive $1,000 a week to spend on clothing and beauty only. If it is discovered that you're spending the stipend on something frivolous like student loans, your allowance can be revoked at any time. And rule number six, no fraternizing with the butlers ever. The mansion and all its inhabitants also revolve around a set weekly itinerary. Monday is manly night, which consists of a buffet dinner and a movie in the screening room with Hef and his male friends. No blondes allowed. Tuesday is family night, which is attended by Hef's sons and ex-wife Kimberly. Wednesday and Friday is club night. At 10pm sharp, The limo leaves to go into Hollywood for a group outing at the Standard or Barfly. Thursday, like Monday and Tuesday, is an off night that you can spend however you please as long as you're back behind the mansion gates by 9 p.m. sharp. Saturday is a buffet dinner and movie night. And finally, Sunday is fun in the sun, consisting of recreation by the pool, followed by a buffet dinner and another movie screening. Attendance on Wednesdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays is mandatory, as is your participation in the bi-weekly group sex event on Wednesdays and Fridays upon returning from the nightclub. Sex nights were also incredibly regimented, because as any playboy knows, nothing is more erotic than sex so predictable that it borders on ritualistic cult orgy. As the seven girlfriends rotated in and out of the mansion, the choreography and roles for sex nights always remained the same. The group would include all the girlfriends, plus any guest stars that might have joined them out at the club that night. One of the girlfriends would be designated as a guide of sorts that would take the new girls through every step that would follow. Allegedly, Bridget eventually assumed this role according to a woman named Jill Ann Spaulding, who floated around the Playboy orbit around 2003. Desperate to become a playmate, Jill Ann had participated in a couple of sex nights and described her experience in Hefnerland, a piece of writing that you could say is technically a book but feels more like a very long Microsoft Word document. Listen. It's very juicy, and it gets into way more details about the sex stuff than Holly's book, but it reads very much like a stream of consciousness, and she seems to struggle with choosing one consistent font size. But as Jill Ann describes the routine, after the girls returned home from the club, everyone would go upstairs to prepare. Live-in girlfriends would go to their rooms, and the visiting girls would go to the Roman-style bathtub in Hef's living quarters. The rule was that during this time, everyone was to be rinsing off like you're about to go take a swim lesson at the YMCA. Hef's preoccupation with the ladies' cleanliness apparently only extended to the outside of their bodies because he was, and always had been, notoriously very anti-condom. The only measure of STD protection used in the bedroom routine was a warm, wet hand towel. The role of the main girlfriend was to wipe down half stiak with a fresh towel in between each woman he penetrated. Now, if you've had an intimate experience with a half rack of baby back ribs, a scrub down with a wet nap is probably all you need. However, Though some pork was pulled, we're talking about an orgy, not a barbecue. So as you can imagine, contracting an STD was a very realistic threat. But on Wednesdays and Fridays, the girls would just have to step into the shower and scrub themselves down until their fear began to circle the drain, along with a light film of vodka, Red Bull, spray tan and sweat. After hosing off, the girls would file into Heff's dark, cavernous room. Two side-by-side televisions playing porn lit their way as they tiptoed around piles of old magazines and landmines of dog poop left by one of the many untrained mansion animals. Hef would plop himself in the middle of the bed, where all the girls gathered around him to take a spin like his dick was a goddamn maypole, But first, Hef would pass around a joint, while another girl would pass out the vibrators that were attached to cords, which plugged into a wall outlet. The UK Sun reported that model and personality Katie Price once said that when she visited the Playboy Mansion, she, quote, Saw him do the deed with younger girls. On Wednesdays and Fridays, we'd all go out and then go back to his room. Some of those toys were like a Dyson Hoover. Okay, at this point we are in the very early 2000s. I know we weren't that far along with mobile phones yet, but in 2001, there was still no reason to be using a landline vibrator from the 1970s. And you can bet those were the same exact vibrators they've been using since the 70s. A former Mansion staff member once told the New York Post that while he worked there in 1978 and 1979, one of his many duties was to ensure that the maids collected Hef's stash of used vibrators, sanitize them, and return them to the secret compartment above his bed. Now we know that Hef never replaced anything, so it stands to reason that these things were probably not just gently used, they were rode hard and put away dry. And what was going on with the electrical wiring on those things 25 years after they first rolled off the factory conveyor belt? Is there a class action lawsuit to explore here? How many women's eggs were fried thanks to some rich guy and his pathological sense of nostalgia? I don't care if that Hitachi Wan was first christened by Audrey Hepburn herself, throw it out. Sorry, back to the ritualistic cult orgy. So everyone's got their vibrators plugged into a wall socket and everyone's being very careful not to spill a glass of water on their vagina and then it's time to start. The girls take their time with Hef one by one and the dickly is strictly two minutes long. Basically, you hop on, sing through the national anthem once in your head and you hop off. Meanwhile, in the background, the other six to ten girls would create some ambiance for Hef's benefit by making noises and pretending to kiss and have sex with each other, which they called faking the fuck. And though that term sounds very sterile, in my head I like to imagine that what they were doing could be better described as performing homo erotica in silhouette. It's choreographed. They're playing with levels, they're using the space. Lots of sensual hip rolling. It's very Bob Fosse, very sexual, yet vacant. Sandy Bentley cartwheels into a headstand and Mandy Bentley catches both of her ankles midair and spreads her legs apart. Pose. Give it it to to her her daddy. daddy. Pose. The TV glows and Holly Madison steps into the light, leaving Holly, Sue Cullen, in the shadows forever. Her black bowler hat is pulled low on her forehead. A smoky eye peeks out from behind the brim, and she begins to sing the opening bars from Cabaret. Does that sound too fantastical? Sure, but would you rather imagine that or a group of 20-year-olds on quaaludes pretending to paw at each other? I don't know. That sounds very fossy to me, very Liza Minnelli. I'm sticking with it. So, Holly decides to come to the cabaret that is life at the Playboy Mansion. At first, she has some reservations about staying, especially after she told some acquaintances about the arrangement and their reactions were all pretty negative. But then, on 9/11, everything changed. The country was living in a state of fear and uncertainty. Being locked inside the gates now felt a lot safer than being out in the world. As Hef always said, the mansion was Shangri-La, and when you were in there, the troubles of the world couldn't reach you. For half, that was literally true. According to his ex-girlfriend, Isabel St. James, the events of September 11th didn't seem to rattle him in the slightest. Basically, a terrorist attack went up on a Tuesday, but he still had every intention of getting down on a Wednesday. She says in her book, Bunny Tales, that on 9-11, she, quote,
1: received a personal call from HEP asking me to go out with them. I told him I couldn't considering what had just happened and expressed mild disappointment that he would consider going out at a time like this. He seemed taken aback by my tone and mumbled something about how life must go on. I agreed that life must go on, but it was much too soon. Later I came to realize that come rain, snow, blackout, or any other natural disaster, Hef would still wanna go out. Why? So he could have an after party in his room.
0: A 9-11 orgy is dismal, but also still kind of very fossy, very second act of cabaret. After that fateful day, Holly made the commitment to herself that she would do whatever she could to avoid getting kicked out of the mansion. That included becoming the type of woman that her new boyfriend was most attracted to. Just as Hef was known to do in his life, Holly reinvented herself as well. She got a Playboy bunny tattoo on her lower back. She stopped bleaching her own hair and instead went to Jose Iber Salon, where Playboy had a running tab and she got acrylic nails, a tan, and dyed her hair white blonde. Finally, she got a nose job that was paid for by Hef, chiseled by Michelangelo, and sanctioned by God. Truly excellent work, second only to the masterpiece hanging on Ashley Simpson's face. Her transformation into Holly Madison was complete, and it had all come together like she'd always imagined it would. Here's a clip of Holly during her personality test for The Girls Next Door, which was filmed before the show started and can be found on the season one DVD extras.
2: This is going to be hard for me to articulate. I don't think it's that I ever realized I was beautiful. I think it's that I realized that I was ambitious enough to recognize what was beautiful and change myself into that person because it takes effort to be beautiful, whether it's getting your hair done or
0: getting surgery or whatever. And I knew that if I wanted to be beautiful, I could. With a sugar daddy. A bone saw and a dream. You, too, can become hot. Another way Holly stayed in Hef's good graces was to follow the rules and stick to his schedule. At first, this ingratiated Holly to the other girlfriends. If Holly showed up to every movie night and enthusiastically splashed around at every fun in the sun party, Hef wasn't as upset that the other girlfriends weren't participating. But soon, her good behavior backfired when Hef began using her as an example, asking the other girls why they couldn't be more like Holly. This made matters even worse for her socially, since from the beginning, Holly had a difficult time connecting with the other girls. Struggling to make friends wasn't anything new for her, and she talks about why she thinks that might be in an April interview on the podcast Call Her Daddy.
2: I had a hard time fitting in, and I also, looking back, I suspect that I'm not neurotypical. Like, I think I have Asperger's. Like, I want to go get diagnosed. I never considered myself as someone who might be on the spectrum. I just never thought of it. I always thought I just had difficulties with people, and I was just different, and I just attributed it to being, like, an introvert or a bookworm growing up or things like that. I just thought I was just always challenged socially. I didn't know. But um, one time, my ex-husband was talking to my mom, and he was asking her, like... He was saying I was really hard to connect with. And that that's like my husband at the time saying that. So that, that just goes to show how hard I am to connect with. And he was asking my mom about it. And my mom said, well, I always thought she had Asperger's. And she just never said anything to me because it's not... I mean, you can do treatment for it, but it's not like something you can be, you know, quote-unquote cured from or anything like that. So she never said anything about that and... There were moments in my childhood, and this was in the 80s when I was really little, where people would come up to her and ask if I was autistic. And back then, autism wasn't being diagnosed like it is today at all.
0: Living with the other girls became increasingly hostile, as they would openly mock Holly and steal her clothes. Complaining to half about it was no use, because he secretly enjoyed the turmoil between his girlfriends because it made him feel fought over. Instead of helping to smooth things over, He would twist things around until Holly ended up apologizing to him for ever bringing it up. But instead of blaming Hef for the unrest in the group, she started to identify with her captor. The other girls would mock Hef behind his back, or right next to his back, as long as they were on the same side as his bad ear. Holly deluded herself into believing that the girls were the true problem, not Hef, the man who set the rules and the tone for everyone's behavior in the Playboy universe. She did have one respite from mansion life, as she still had a few shifts a week at her Hooters job, which Hef didn't seem to mind. Until one day, when her manager called and asked if she'd like to represent their Santa Monica restaurant in the Hooters bikini contest and be featured in the Hooters magazine. Yes, there was a Hooters magazine. It was a very different time for printed media. Holly was excited and flattered knowing that she had so many beautiful co-workers and out of all of them, they had chosen her. But when she asked Hef to take two days off to participate, he blew a gasket. Not only did she have to refuse the honor, he forced her to quit her job. She was stripped of a new career opportunity and a way to make her own money, so she was now more dependent on Hef than ever. This was no coincidence on his part because it's a classic move by abusers. Heff was becoming increasingly insecure as he realized that after every girlfriend was finished shooting their Playboy pictorials, they would quickly haul ass out of the mansion because they were never really there for him. A chance to be in the magazine was the ultimate goal for every woman living there, and the $25,000 they were paid for posing was the cushion they needed to move out and find a new place. Heff didn't want his girlfriends pursuing any new opportunities that might give them the power or money to leave him, and that included posing in his own magazine. So from then on, he decided that he would never put another girlfriend in Playboy again, but he wasn't about to let any of them know that. By 2002, Holly had become completely immersed in the Playboy world, and the dream she had of becoming an actress had taken a back seat. She would soon become even more isolated when Heff's main girlfriend, Tina Jordan, decided to leave the mansion, creating an opening for one of the other girlfriends. In Holly's book, she talks about not fully understanding what the job title entailed, and she describes her ascent as something thrust upon her, saying, the other girls all but shoved me into the number one spot. But according to Isabel St. James, Holly didn't need any push.
1: Holly got the position because no one else wanted the job,
0: she said in her memoir.
1: It meant sharing a room with Hef and having a regular sexual relationship with him. It meant more than what one would consider standard sex. Apparently, that was the requirement. Most of us were there for a good time, not a long time, and not to be Hef's chambermaid. We wanted to have fun, party, shop, flirt with boys, and have the least amount of supervision from Half.
0: I imagine the reality is somewhere in the middle of both of their interpretations. Either way, Half asked Tolly to move into his room, and if she wasn't sure before, it was clear that her stay at the mansion was no longer on a trial basis. Though Half didn't make any big deal or grand gesture, Becoming the main girlfriend made Holly feel special and beautiful. Many women who have been asked to be a girlfriend have described the same thing. For a man like Hef to choose you, a man whose society has deemed the arbiter of what makes a woman beautiful, that must really mean something if he wants you to be his girlfriend. It also helped that overnight, Hef began showering Holly with declarations of love. She thought it was odd and she knew that he'd said those same things to Tina when he was with her 24 hours earlier, but she ignored the red flags and started to believe him. More importantly, she started to believe that she felt the same way about him. Here's another clip from the Call Her Daddy interview.
2: Um, I've always had like a difficult time connecting with other people, Um And I bring that up because as we get into the story of me arriving at the mansion and thinking it's realistic for me to have a relationship with a much older man, when I was dealing with all the love bombing and the things that were coming from him, I kind of thought to myself, well, I've never really connected with a guy my own age and I have a lot of time connecting with anybody my age. Maybe I'm just like this old soul and I'm meant to be with older people. So I think that
0: played into that a lot. Being Hef's main girlfriend didn't protect Holly from the ridicule of the other girls in the house. By now, Holly barely spoke, and when she did, she was so nervous that she developed a stammer. She was also losing sight of her individuality, something that had always been important to her. Now she looked just the same as every other girl in her life, except for one thing that set her apart, her hair. All the other girls had severely damaged hair thanks to constant bleaching. Holly's hair, though bleached as well, was still stronger and healthier, so while the other girls needed extensions for length and to fill in thin spots, Holly's hair was naturally beautiful and thick. This point of pride was threatened when a woman named Mary Jo had flown in from Alabama to test shoot and was staying at the mansion. Her natural hair was longer, blonder, and stronger than Holly's, and even worse, she was set on becoming a girlfriend the only thing that Holly had that made her different or better than the other girls was about to be rendered meaningless. In the throes of insecurity, she felt the need to rebel and stand out in an even bigger way. Though it had only been a few months, Holly needed to undergo another reinvention, this time modeling herself after a different girl that Hef loved. Marilyn Monroe. Holly went to Jose Ibert's salon, and had them chop her hair and give her the Marilyn makeover, complete with red lipstick. It was an unwritten rule to never wear red lipstick in Hef's presence. There's one thing I know for sure Hef does not like, and that's red lipstick. Oh. Though she'd been warned by the other girlfriends, Holly wondered how deep his aversion to it truly ran. Red lipstick was a staple for every old Hollywood starlet that he was in love with as a kid, After returning home from the salon, she was eager to show Hef her new look. Here she is describing the interaction with Hef in her memoir.
2: "'Come in here, Puffin,' I said in a happy sing-song voice. "'I want to show you something!' I stood up and straightened out my white, juicy couture jumpsuit when he finally appeared in the doorway. "'What did you do?' he spat at me. Instantly, I was taken aback. "'I got a little makeover!' I said sheepishly, giving a slight pat to my new hair. Any shred of confidence I found over the last few hours was quickly evaporating. I thought you would like it. Well, I don't, he hissed, taking a moment to analyze my new makeup and hair. My eyes immediately darted to the floor. I didn't know what to say. Of all the reactions he could have had, I was the least prepared for this one. I stood there silent. Actually, I hate it. He continued, the words shooting like knives off his tongue. I hate the whole look. I hate the makeup, and I hate the red lipstick. I couldn't help the tears that began streaming down my face, ruining the makeup I'd been so excited about. I sank back onto the tufted stool. Was this really happening? He'd never yelled at me like this before. Don't ever wear red lipstick again, he warned me in a low voice and turned towards the door. I was utterly dumbfounded. It was such an irrational reaction to something so small. Even once he saw me crying, there wasn't an ounce of sympathy in his voice. He only saw red, pun intended. He paused and turned back around to survey my reaction. Deciding he hadn't done enough damage, he served me one final blow before storming out of the room. You look old, hard, and cheap. That was it. End of conversation.
0: His reaction was so overblown that it made an impression on the rest of the Girlfriends, so much so that Isabel St. James wrote about the incident in her memoir years before Holly ever wrote her book. Though in Isabel's account, Hef also called her a harlot, and then for months after, Emma, the meanest of the Girlfriends, would refer to Holly as Helmet Head, thanks to her short haircut. Despite living in a mansion and having the opportunities to attend Hollywood events, meet celebrities and fly on the occasional private jet, Holly was officially disillusioned with the Playboy life. After the red lipstick incident, her confidence and self-worth hit an all time low. She didn't have any friends in the mansion and she had lost contact with the few friends she had on the outside. Holly needed a confidant, a life raft to grab onto, someone who understood her a disney adult without someone to make mansion life more tolerable eventually she'd have to pack up and go home and all she had put herself through would have amounted to nothing as the clock struck midnight the full moon could hear the yearning inside holly's heart suddenly The ground below Hobby Lobby in Lodi, California began to quake. Jars of Mod Podge and puffy paints rolled down the aisles. Heart-shaped cupcake tins rattled and clanked as they fell from the shelves. Cracks spider-webbed through the craft store until finally the earth split open right down the middle of the scrapbooking aisle. A bright pink beam of light shot up from the earth's core, carrying with it, blonde being the quaking stops and the beauty safely floats to the ground who was this creature an angel a ghost a mirage she parts her lips to speak
1: hi honey
0: here's the new baby Mm. join us next time for the continuation of part three Lay Do You Remember This is researched, written, narrated, and edited by me, Dara Lane. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple or Spotify and leave a rating and review. You can follow updates on the pod on Instagram and Twitter, stream our early 2000s Spotify and Apple music playlists, and download some Lay Do-inspired coloring book pages. You'll find those links on the show's Instagram. And please, if you like the podcast, share it tell your friends. It's true what they say. It takes a village to make me famous. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please email lay do you remember this at gmail.com. So, you're invited to come back next week. We've got a table, and I've put you on the list for Leydou You, Remember This.